The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome back my guest from last week, author Laura Lenick. Her book, Resilient Agriculture, Cultivating Food Systems for a Changing Climate. Laura is the perfect person to write this book. She has explored agricultural and food system sustainability through more than 30 years of work as a federal researcher and policymaker, college educator, community activist, and farmer to understand what it takes to move sustainability values into action. Her research in sustainable agriculture systems was nationally recognized with the USDA Secretary's Honor Award in 2000, and she has broad federal policy expertise gained through work as a congressional lobbyist. She's also been a private consultant and a U.S. Senate staffer. For more than a decade, Laura led the academic program in sustainable agriculture at Warren Wilson College, where she also served as the director of sustainability education, coordinated energy, dissent action planning, and developed an innovative sustainable dining policy for the college. She has contributed to the third national climate assessment as a lead author of the USDA report, Climate Change in Agriculture in the United States, Effects and Adaptation. And in 2014, Laura left Warren Wilson to serve as co-director of Resilience Initiatives for Second Nature. She is affiliated with the Local Food Research Center and a climate resilience planning consultant with Fernleaf Solutions, and she is based in Asheville, North Carolina. She also holds a Ph.D. in soil science. Phew! Laura, welcome back. Well, thank you. It's great to be back. Well, we had such a wonderful conversation, but clearly we needed more time because I know that this is such an important topic, not only from an agriculture thriving perspective, but also in terms of public health and quality nutrition and food. So let's just, for our listeners, summarize a bit from last week. Tell me what your definition is for resilient agriculture. Well, I think about resilient agriculture as a type of agriculture that can weather disturbances and changes of all kinds and at the same time provide multiple benefits to society. So not just food, but also better environmental quality, improved public health, stronger communities, and uh, increased human capacity, as well as greater ability to innovate and find new solutions to problems. That's most generally how we would describe the characteristics of a resilient agriculture. So you had mentioned briefly that there were five assets of resilient agriculture. Can you just review what those are? Sure, I can. There's a lot of research to suggest that Adaptive systems, resilient systems of all kinds, not just agricultural systems, depend on a balanced portfolio of assets under management. And these assets are natural resources, human resources, 
social resources you can think about as community resources, financial and technological or built resources. And this set of assets, this portfolio of assets, are those that are commonly recognized in in any sort of business management. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. The social aspects and the community aspects are a piece that I think has been rising to the top in a lot of my conversations lately with people who are looking at what works and what makes a community thrive. And so we have this narrative in our country of rugged individualism, but really what I'm learning is that it takes community cohesion to truly be resilient. That's exactly right. That's the way that I see it, too. And uh, resilience theory clearly explains that resilience is a community-based quality. An individual cannot be resilient in and of themselves. They cannot create a resilient situation separate from community. Yeah. So it, so it, it is a community-based characteristic. Mm-hmm. We need each other, in other words. Absolutely. I like to think about it takes a village. Yeah. And it takes more than it takes a village to raise a child, but it also takes a village to sustain community over yeah. time. Well, what I love about your book, and we touched on this briefly also last week, was that you have interviewed farmers from all over the country, and you spoke to them in terms of resiliency as it relates to climate change and weather patterns that they're seeing. And the the common denominator for all of the stories that you tell here is that farmers are witnessing drastic changes in weather. So they've lost their ability to predict what was dependable, say, 20 years ago in terms of weather patterns has changed, and they're seeing greater fluctuations in what's happening. So I think that that's a really good way for us to think about how challenging it must be to produce food when we don't really know what to expect, what's on the horizon. And along that vein, one of the issues that I was hoping to bring up last week, but we ran out of time, had to do with your participation in the climate talks in Paris. Tell us a lot about what that entailed and what it was like for you and what were the common themes in Paris. Yeah, wow, what an experience. I was invited to participate in the talks as a member of civil society delegation, so I was not a formal delegate to the talks, but I went over on the invitation of Regeneration International. It's a new international nonprofit that is focusing on uh, promoting regenerative agriculture as a solution to climate change. I spent 10 days in Paris. I observed some of the formal talks. I got updates every day from members of the Regeneration International delegation who were formal delegates. And I was also involved in different actions and gave talks and made comments at different public events throughout the city during those 10 days. It's my first experience of being involved in an international talks of that type, and I really have focused most of my work in agriculture on the U.S. rather than, and also the climate change was really focused on what, what's going on in our own country. And honestly, when I was invited, I, I was excited to go, and I thought that it would very likely inform my work in the U.S. 
in very important ways. But I was completely unprepared for the way that, that it transformed my thinking about the politics around climate change. I witnessed firsthand the world for the 10 days that I was there doing their best to navigate the climate denial in our Congress in the U.S., figuring out how to word this international document so that it could not be shot down by this small group of climate deniers in our Congress. I was truly shocked to watch the world have to navigate that way. And I did not recognize until the time in Paris just how much of a barrier to the whole world getting on with a positive response to climate change that the small group of climate deniers in our Congress, how, how much of a barrier that small group represents to the, to the entire world. You know, they have frustrated me personally, but after my time in Paris, I see a real need for us to begin to engage with our, with the leadership, our own state and federal delegations, encourage them to rethink their position on climate change and to start becoming, to become part of the solution rather than remaining a barrier to the world moving forward on this issue. So how do we do that? What do we need? Do we need a different set of terms? Do you mean specifically in how we engage with our representatives? Right. I mean, do we need a different language? Is climate change so loaded a term? Do we need to reframe that so that we can have a conversation and come to the table? You know, I don't have the answer to that question. That is a question that since Paris I have really explored. I want to understand how we reach out across our differences that have been promoted, I think, by our media and other forces in this country that have turned climate change into such a political issue. Mm. And how do we get beyond that to begin working together? And I have learned something. I've, I've been reading some books, talking to different experts in how we bridge this gap in our society But I don't have any specific answers for you today. I mean, it's such a huge cultural challenge. I mean, we're seeing it in the presidential election this year. So, you know, I don't have an answer other than to say that what I have learned is the very first step is to engage and engage in terms that are acceptable to the person that you're, you're trying to engage with to begin where they are and to draw them into conversation Mm -hmm. about these issues. Well, I think it's really important from a food access perspective. You know, I always try to bring things back to food nutrition. And Mm -hmm. last week we had spoken about how we don't really see the effects of climate change maybe as directly as consumers in the supermarket because we have this global diet. And yet, if you look at individual countries or even individual states like California, for example, where water is disappearing, you can start thinking about how our food and diet may be changing as a result of climate change. 
and what that's going to look like. What is the table of tomorrow going to look like because of the impact of climate change? Well, I think that the table of tomorrow, if we're talking, say, 50 years from now in the U.S., and if we assume that we do have successful global action to slow down and perhaps even begin to reverse climate change, that's a big if. But I think that the table of tomorrow will actually look a lot like the table of yesterday. All the work that I've done in looking at visions of of a resilient food system absolutely point to the same place, a re-regionalization of the U.S. food system and a a re-solarization, as Michael Pollan called it, which I think of as a re-sustainification or regeneration of the food system. So that is going to create a more regionally based diet. We will probably be eating less processed food, more whole foods, and probably a little more seasonally. But resilience also suggests that we do want to keep open lines of trade among regions and then also international trade. So I think we could still expect to enjoy tropical products like coffee and chocolate and fine wines from Europe and those sorts of global influences on our diet. I think that they will still be there in a resilient food system. Mm-hmm. Let me take one moment to let our listeners know that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Laura Lenick. She is the author of Resilient Agriculture, Cultivating Food Systems for a Changing Climate, and she is based just outside of Asheville, North Carolina. Dr. Lenick, or Laura, if I might, one of the things we spoke about last week, or we touched on anyway, is that the food system we have is not creating well-being. And if we have a truly resilient form of agriculture, we will have well-being. Just as you mentioned, if we re-regionalize and we get rid of a lot of the processed foods, then automatically that will solve a lot of our public health problems. But from the climate perspective, you know, the deniers, you can understand why there would be pushback because there's so much profit riding on this industrial system. Even farmers themselves, I think, even if they see the writing on the wall, I don't believe they know how to get out of this system. Yes. Well, anytime you're trying to change such a complex, large system that holds so much value, both intrinsic value, food is something we all need every day, but also it's a large sector of the economy. Change is not going to be easy, and change, I believe, will need to come from both individuals and communities working together, so kind of that grassroots kind of pushing for change, as well as changes in policies that will open up and remove barriers to a more resilient agriculture and food system. So the change is going to have to come from both ends of that spectrum. Yeah. If you look at some of the direction that we're being pulled 
philosophically about where we need to go to feed the billions more that are going to be inhabiting the earth in face of climate change, a lot of the emphasis seems to be on genetic engineering. And certainly the Gates Foundation is behind that. And I wonder, you know, coming from your regional roots and your ability to see the power of re-regionalizing agriculture in the face of climate change, where do you think genetic engineering fits in, if it fits in? That's a great question. And I contend in the book that industrialism in general has tended to create a very unbalanced portfolio. You remember that portfolio of assets that we discussed mm-hmm. a little earlier. I believe that industrialism in general, not just industrial agriculture, but the process of industrialization tends to degrade natural, human, and social resources and tends to focus on financial and technological solutions to problems. And so I would put the solution of genetic engineering squarely in the technological asset. And I view the arguments for genetic engineering as an important tool to solve climate change in an industrial mindset that we are going to be able to build our way or burn our way out of these problems. That is a very 20th century mindset. We've been pretty successful for about 150 years in burning or building our way out of problems. I don't think that is going to work for the future. I've already said what a resilient agriculture needs, a balanced portfolio across all of those assets. So from my point of view, putting more emphasis and investing more in genetic engineering is just compounding the mistakes that have been made already in terms of favoring financial and technological solutions. We need to be transitioning resources, turning resources away from financial and technological solutions and investing them to restore natural, human, and social resources. Yeah, it's very interesting because we're always trying to navigate these different arguments about what is the best way forward. One of the issues that I see as being looming, in addition to just helping to convince people that, yes, indeed, we are facing a climate crisis, is the issue of water resources, both from a shrinking amount of water where we've typically not had to worry about it, to the pollution of our water resources, where we see whole communities having illnesses related to contaminated water and a privatization of our water resources. So through the lens of resiliency, where do we go next with regard to water? Well, in the work that I did with farmers around the country, water came out clearly as a current challenge. And climate science tells us that water is really the near-term big challenge we've got ahead of us. Farmers across the country are dealing with a paradox of too much and not enough water at the same time. And this is related to the increased variability and more frequent and intense weather extremes that we've seen all across the country. 
in terms of farming or the effect of agriculture on this too much and not enough water, we're seeing farmers in the same year putting in both irrigation and new drainage to try to address this too much and not enough water. In other parts of the country, a good example that I'm sure everyone by now has heard about is this continuing drought in California and the effect of warmer winters on reducing snowpack in the Pacific states, which are a good portion of the water in the Pacific states comes from melt water from snowpack. So these issues are, the warmer winters in particular, are bringing up new issues of competition for water between agriculture and other parts of society, like industry and municipalities, drinking water for people. The pollution issue just adds a whole other level of complexity, and one way we can think about it, at least today, is that polluted water is not useful water, therefore the volume of useful water is reduced when the water is polluted. Or you have to maybe treat it, or in some way using that water degrades community well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've seen this situation where the polluted water becomes an externality where the people who are polluting it are not paying to clean it up or paying for the consequences in public health damage. So I also see this as one of those triple bottom line issues to talk about, you know, who pays for the damage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm concerned that we're not putting enough emphasis on the quality of water. I remember when I was a young dietetic student learning that water was the number one most important nutrient. And a lot of times we talk about food nutrition. We don't talk about water nearly enough from my perspective. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't really think about it in terms of who pays. I mean, I think you can get down to that level of, you know, who pays for that pollution and we have a, a couple of different sort of policy approaches to that. But I like to think about it if if we're taking a resilience frame on the issue is that water poor water quality and well, reductions in water quality and in and in quantity is just an example, a specific example of this degradation of natural resources that's associated with industrialism. Yeah. And so the, the way forward, what will put us on a resilient path, is to begin to invest, reinvest in restoration of water resources, both quantity and quality. And who does that and how that's done, I mean, that's a matter for for citizens working through their governments to to figure that one out. Right. Another a strong message in resilience is that that solutions to these kind of problems are regional and local in nature. And so we want to leave we can certainly as a nation create goals to build resilience in our food systems and that would be strong, you know, to have sufficient and, and of high quality water resources as we need them. But we can leave it to the regions to innovate solutions because the solutions will differ depending on the location of the issue. Absolutely. And I wonder if we can talk a little bit about policy in the last few minutes that we have. What policies have you seen working on the ground within the United States? 
And also, what kinds of policies did you see being advocated for during the Paris climate talks? Are there some policies that you think, gosh, you know, if we could all just get behind this, we might be able to see greater resiliency faster? Yeah, it's a great question, and I'll just give you a few specific examples. One of the surprising outcomes of the work I did to write Resilient Agriculture was I went through, through some dark days working on that book as I learned more and more about the challenges ahead. But one of the surprising outcomes was when I realized that the sustainable agriculture and food movement have been busy for decades beginning to build a foundation for resilient agriculture. So in terms of examples of policies that are working, in my opinion, to promote resilient food systems, you can point to any of the federal policies, state or local policies, that are encouraging sustainable agriculture, organic agriculture, regional food production, processing. And we actually have a fairly good diverse array of programs that are investing now at the, from the federal down to the local level in local and sustainable food. And I think all of that is the beginnings. It provides a good foundation for for redirecting more investment that way. On the national level, I think that we have a lot of existing federal programs directed to agriculture that we could also revise a bit to include resilience goals and then expand. Lots of conservation programs in agriculture where we're doing cost share with farmers and rural communities to build environmental quality, to address environmental quality issues, to conserve environmental resources, those sorts of things. Programs like the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, Conservation Stewardship, Conservation Technical Assistance. Those are, are just three specific ones. So we have a lot that we can already build on. I do think it's important, though, that we build on them from within a resilience framework and with resilience goals. Mm -hmm. The kinds of policies that got me the most excited in Paris were ones that mostly right now are not included in the international agreement, and they were policies that attempted to promote and raise awareness to the potential solutions in sustainable agriculture and food systems to both mitigate climate change and also improve resilience of food production to to climate change. Uh, one specific policy is one that, that's gotten a lot of attention since Paris. It's called the 4 by 1000. It's a French policy that they are asking countries to countries and organizations, businesses, uh, any sort of entity can sign up to commit to increasing soil carbon content mm. by four tenths of a percent, four thousandths of a percent. I'm sorry, I don't have the, I don't remember exactly. It's four by one thousand. Um, basically, increase soil carbon content as a goal of their business or their community group or uh, even countries have signed on. So that's a French proposal to basically get started showing the sequestration potential of, uh, of soils. Well, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Lenick, for being my guest again and for bringing more resilient thinking to the table when we talk about our food and agriculture systems. 
In closing, I want to certainly thank Dr. Laura Lennick for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We have been talking about the book, Resilient Agriculture, Cultivating Food Systems for a Changing Climate. Dr. Lennick, thank you so much again for being with me and sharing some insights from Paris and our own home soil. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you.